All right. Hey, good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. If you brought your own Bibles, uh, turn with me to Romans. If you uh, didn't happen to bring your own Bible, there should be a few Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, if you don't have access to any, any of those or either of those, uh, most of our text in Romans chapter uh, 3 should be on the screen. And so Romans chapter 3 is where we find ourselves in uh, part 3 of our very short sermon series in the book of Romans called Law and Order. And we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And we will uh, run verses 9 through verse 20. Uh, I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Closing Arguments, as, uh, as we've seen before in our skit. Uh, Paul, as a, as a very good prosecutor, now kind of closes the deal. He wants to seal the deal. He wants to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. He presents his closing argument, his his final summation of the guilt of every person that has ever lived before a holy God, and he does so rather convincingly. And so Romans chapter 3 is where we find ourselves, verses 9 through 20. Uh, As you're getting there or are there, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll dive uh, right into the text and see Paul give his closing argument. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the morning. Uh, thank you for these people who are here um, to, uh, to worship you and, and to, uh, to, to fellowship with one another and to hear from your word. Uh, Father, that is what we want to hear from is you. We want to hear from your word. Uh, Father, I don't want these people to hear from me um, because what I say is meaningless if it's not in accordance to your word and to what you say in your holy scripture. And so help us to hear from you. Help us to hear the very words from your lips, uh, from the pen and from the mouth of uh, your servant Paul. Help us to understand uh, what it is that you're speaking about. Help us to see uh, these weighty issues of guilt and innocence. Father, as we have been exploring this text, I I pray uh, so fervently that all of us have come to the realization um, that uh, regardless of how good, regardless of how bad, regardless of how moral, uh, regardless of how religious we are, um, that we fall short of your holy standards and we fall short of your glory. We fall short of your righteousness and of your holiness and we are, are left with nothing uh, in and of ourselves that can, uh, that can give us um, an ear with you, that can make us right with you, uh, that will allow us to come into your holy presence. And so there, I pray that you would kind of draw us to, to our knees and help us to look outside of ourselves because there is one through whom we can come. And there is one through whom we can be made right. And there is one whom we can be declared innocent, although we are guilty. And there is one who can wash away the guilt and the stain of all of our sins and he is your son. His name is Jesus. And so, Jesus, would you be among us? Would you, even in the midst of uh, discovering our guilt, may we look towards you because uh, you are innocent. You are the perfect and holy and sinless one, and we can have your innocence and your righteousness simply by receiving it as a gift, simply by taking it by faith. And so, even as we hear these closing arguments about our guilt, may we always look forward, as we will see very clearly next week, that there is hope and that there is salvation and it's in Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, be among us. Help us to, uh, to be uh, willing recipients of your word. Help our minds to not be distracted, um, but to, to be able to, to focus. And I pray that you would guard my lips, that I would say things that are true and accurate and, and, and nothing, uh, nothing less. And so we ask for your help. We ask for uh, your supernatural presence and movement among us. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. And God's people said, amen.
Amen. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, there was a, a correspondent who wrote for the famous London Times. And he oftentimes, in fact many times, ended his articles with these words, uh, kind of as he penned uh, off his article. He ended most of his articles with these words, What is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? And that's, that's how he ended many of his articles. Well, there was a a man who lived in in London at that time by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He was a Christian author uh, and a great Christian apologist. That is, he defended the Christian faith. And he, I guess, at one point got tired of this man's question lingering and looming at the end of every article. And so he decided one day to write a response, to to write a response to uh, the paper, to this man's question, what what is wrong with the world today? And he wrote these brief uh, but impactful and true words in response in the paper one day. He said this, Dear editor, what is wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? He said that he was. This morning, Paul is going to make a very similar argument. He's going to make a very similar argument for uh, the guilt of every single person before a holy God. In fact, that's what he's been doing. If you're, if you're new with us, for a couple weeks now, Paul has been talking about the guilt of every person before a holy God. He said that those who blatantly sin, who disregard and disbelieve God, that they are, 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 are not innocent and they are guilty. He's then moved on to those who are moral, who are good people, who don't commit the big sins. And he said, they are guilty guilty too. He then moved on to even those who are religious, even those who are involved in some sort of religious activity, and he he says even even those people are guilty before a holy God. And so thus far, he's argued our guilt based upon our deeds. That's important to note, and hopefully it came out in the skit. Thus far, Paul has been presenting all of the evidence to us against ourselves, and it's all been based on what we do. It's been based on our our deeds, and certainly, certainly reading Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's sufficient. It's enough. It's enough for us to understand that because of what we do, we are guilty before holy God, But, but this is the closing argument. Paul wants to nail, uh, put the nail in the proverbial coffin, so to speak, and so he goes a little deeper, and he argues that we're not guilty just because of what we do. He goes on to make the argument that Holy Scripture says that we're guilty because of who we are. We're guilty because of human nature itself. And so as Paul answers the question, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Paul's answer is the same as G.K. Chesterton's. I am, or to put it collectively, we are. We are what is wrong with the world. And so if you look at your text, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we see three major movements. So if you're taking notes, three simple movements, uh, three simple points. In verse 9, what we see is the closing argument stated. And so he, he simply begins by stating his point, by stating his closing argument. It's a short uh, but significant statement. He puts it out there. That's his point, and he states his closing argument in verse 9. And then if you continue to read in verses 10 through 18, he supports it. He states his argument, and then he supports his argument, and then he kind of wraps up in verses 19 through 20 by giving what I would call the the closing arguments sentence. That is, what is the sentence if all of this is true? If we are guilty, what kind of sentence, what kind of punishment do we deserve? 
And so he states it, he supports it, and then he gives its sentence. So let's take a look now at verse 9. Paul, as a good lawyer, he's short but concise and powerful. He gives his closing argument, and we see it in verse 9. He essentially says this. It's stated in verse 9. He says, everyone, without exception, and that's significant, everyone, all of us, without exception, is what he calls under sin. We're going to take a look at that in a bit, but he says all of us are under sin. Let's read this together in verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul uh, begins his closing argument with these words. What shall we conclude then? So you know he's wrapping it up, right? And like any good pastor, he says, what should we conclude? This is the conclusion. And then he preaches for 45 more minutes, right? That's what he does. What shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? He's talking to the religious Jews of that day. Do we have any advantage? Not at all, he says. And then he gets to the point. This is his closing argument. He says this, For we have already made the charge, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that is everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, literally are all under sin. Notice, notice the terminology that he's using here. It's legal terminology. He says, we have made the charge. It's a legal term. He said, we've stated the case. I've, I've made my point that all of us are under the power of sin. Quite literally, it's we're under sin. That little preparation to be under something is, is a military term. And so to help us understand, what, what, what does it mean that when Paul says that me and you and all of us that we're under sin, what does that mean? Well, the military term simply means to be under somebody's authority, to be under somebody's power. And so in the military, if you are under uh, your superior, then what that means is that you are underneath their power. They have authority over you, and they can tell you what to do. They control you in a sense. And so what Paul says here in verse 9 is that, in a way, we are under the authority, we are under the power of sin. It rules us. It dominates us. It influences us. We are under sin. Now, did you notice something? What, what, is it singular or is it plural? Let's read it again, church. What shall we conclude? What, do they have any advantage at all? For we've already charged that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of what, church? Say it. Sin. sin. We're under the power of sin. Now, that's interesting because thus far, what Paul has been arguing is that all of us have committed sins, plural, We've committed sins. That's, that's his argument. He said, we're all guilty before holy God because we've done things that are wrong. We've committed disobedient acts, right? Sins, plural. But he doesn't say that here. He changes it up on us, and it's significant. He says, we're under the power of sin, or literally, literally we're under sin, singular. What is, what is that all about? It's as if he's using the idea of sin and he's personifying it. He's making it into a person, into an entity, into a, a power, so to speak. One Greek scholar by the name of Dr. Honer says, sin here refers to, quote, the domain, the realm, the power of sin. And so here's the image. He says, we are enslaved to sin. He says, sin is like, a, is like a slave master. It's like a slave driver, and we're enchained to it. It's a person. It, can, it controls us. It, it can tell us what to do. But much unlike slavery, we, we willingly obey it. That's the catch. We are enslaved to the slave master's sin, and yet we don't fight him. We do what he wants willingly. We're not coerced, but we do it because we love it. 
One commentator by the name of Dr. Douglas Moo says it very well. He says this about the idea of being under sin. He says, the problem with people is not just that they commit sins. Their problem, my problem, your problem, is that they are enslaved to sin. And that's what Paul is arguing. You could say it this way. You could say we aren't sinners because we sin, right? Just because we do something wrong, it doesn't make us a sinner. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is, it's out of the very nature of who we are brings forth the fruit of what we do. And so Paul here is making an argument, not that we do wrong things. Listen, church, this is so important. He's saying, we are guilty before a holy God because we are wrong. That's what he's saying. He's getting to the very nature of fallen humanity after the fall, after the rebellion, and everyone that has been born from Adam and Eve since that we are all, quote, under sin, under its authority, under its power, willingly, by nature. And so he begins to drive home the nail in the coffin of humanity. That's his closing argument. It's stated in verse nine, but he supports it. Like a good lawyer, he doesn't just make a claim and then say, well, believe me. He wants to support it. And he wants us to understand that there's ample evidence for this claim that we're under sin. And then in verses verses 10 through 18, we see the closing argument is supported. He states it, and then he supports it in verses 10 through 18. You know, in 1948, in 1948, there was a man who's rather famous His last name was Einstein. Maybe you've heard of him before. His first name was Albert Einstein. And while I certainly wouldn't agree with everything he's ever thought or said, I think he made an interesting observation about humanity. Notice this, and I'll quote him. He says, The problem lies in the hearts and the thoughts of men. The problem lies in the hearts and the thoughts of men. It's not, it is not a physical, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, which he had his hand in building, but the power of wickedness in the human heart. He says, what scares me more is not that we can make a bomb that will destroy tens of thousands of people. No, he says, what frightens me most is that we have people who have hearts who are willing to use things for evil. It's the human heart. And that's exactly what Paul is going to argue. He's going to support this idea that we're under sin. And, and, and what he does, it's, it's clever, it's brilliant. Just like we, we saw in, on the stage here, if you were a, def, a prosecutor and you wanted to, like, like I said, drive the nail in the coffin, you wanted to make the point, what you would do is bring in the very best witnesses that you can get, right? That's what you do. The most credible witnesses, the most credible testimony. If you're gonna listen to the testimony of anybody, Paul says, you need to listen to the testimony of God. And that's what he does. He, 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 he strings together a quote of Old Testament quotations, and not just Old Testament quotations, but Old Testament quotations in which, if you notice, they are the lips, they are from the lips of God Himself. God speaks in these passages, and He speaks to humanity. He speaks to the idea that we are under sin. And what I want to show you in these supporting verses of verse 10 through 18 is, is three things. First of all, he, he talks about sin's effect on us. That is, what's the effect of sin in our life? 
And then in verses 11 and 12, he, he says, what's the, what's the extent of sin? That is, how far does it go in us? And then he talks about expression, the expression of sin. That is, what does sin look like in our, in our lives? Let's take a look now at verse 10. Because he, he, he tells us off the get-go the effect of sin. Verse 10, and this is what he says. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so he begins with the effect of sin, and he wants us to be reminded again and again, as he's argued before, that no one is righteous before a holy God. He's saying we all lack the perfect righteousness that it takes to be in fellowship with a holy God. And since he, in a sense, he says sin's effect, guilty. We are all guilty, is what he says. Notice the repetition in these verses. I think you'll notice. He uses terms like no one and all he wants us to understand that there are no exceptions to this. So we've seen sin's effect, we're all guilty, but what about the extent of it? And, and now he begins to argue this, this idea that we're under the influence of sin. Well, okay, maybe we're guilty because of sin, and, and Paul, maybe you're right, maybe there's something about our, our very nature, about, about, about fallen humanity, but, but how far does it go? I mean, how bad is it really? I mean, does it, does it affect how we think? Does it affect our will? Does it affect our emotions? I mean, how much of us does, does this being under sin affect? Well, he, he tells us in verses 11 through 12. Let's, let's read that together. and We see sin's ex- extent. He goes on to say, <clears throat> there, is, there is no one who understands. There is no one who understands. And so, first of all, he says, the deliberations of our mind are faulty. We don't, we don't think right. We don't think the way that God thinks. There's something about how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world, that it's just not quite right. No one understands. And then he goes to our desires, from our deliberations, our thoughts, to our desires. He says, there is no one who seeks God. Let that sink in just a bit. There's no one who seeks God. I would, I would add, apart from the grace of God, apart from God helping that person to seek, there is no one who seeks God. So, our deliberations, how we think, is, are, are skewed. Our desires are bent away from God. No one seeks God. And then he says our decisions are affected as well. Verse, verse 12, he says all of us, all of us have turned away. That is, we see God and he's over there and instead of pursuing him, we run from him. We, all of us have turned away. We've all together become worthless. You see that little term there? We've become worthless. Literally, in the Greek, it means, uh, it, it speaks of, of, of a food particle or maybe milk that has become sour. So it's something that once was good and it's become soured. It's become tainted, right? It's like raw meat. It's like spoiled milk. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever had milk spoil in your fridge or anything like that, but, you know, I've done that once before, and, and you, know, you know what that's like. You're like, oh, I really want some cereal this morning, and so you get the cereal, and you, and you pour it out, and you go, and you're like, there's the milk, and you get the milk, and you take it out, and you don't sniff it or anything. You just pour it right in, and there's some, there's some, some milk, and then there's clumps, right, that just start to come out of them. You're like, and then you get a whiff of it, and you're like, oh, no, right? I don't want to eat that cereal. It's spoiled because milk, is intended to be drank and used for other things. That's its purpose. But when it goes bad, when it goes bad, then you don't use it for its intended purpose. And and that's what this scripture is saying about our decisions. See, we were made not to turn away from God, but to run towards God. We were made to know God. And yet, 
sin has so affected our will that it's bent us away. We're like spoiled milk, once intending to be in love and, and, and related to God, but, but no longer. We've become like sour milk. So we've seen its effect. We're guilty. We've seen its extent. It goes way into all of humanity. I, I heard a, a, a pastor that I like to listen to. His name, his name is Pastor Tommy Nelson. If you just enjoy listening to sermons, I would highly recommend him. He's from Denton Bible Church down in Texas, as all good preachers come uh, from the state of Texas. Um, yeah, no pride there, right? <laughs> uh, and he, he tells a story. And he tells a story, and it was a true story. He said once he was in college, right, and he had a friend who was making some gumbo. And so he remembers his friend sitting uh, above a pot, a large pot of gumbo for his fraternity. And he, he's stirring the pot. He's making the gumbo. He's adding ingredients. He said in the one hand, he was flavoring the gumbo with some beer. And he was doing this, right? He was periodically dumping the beer and, and kind of stirring it, right? But he said this man uh, chewed tobacco. And so on the other hand, he had, he had a, a can of beer that was, that was open and he was doing this. Pour, pour, spit. Pour, stir, spit. Well, I think you see where I'm going with this story because uh, he must have gotten his order off and so instead of pouring the beer, he begins to pour, oh wait, <laughs> right? He begins to pour the tobacco and he said a little bit of the tobacco found its way into the gumbo and so the man had a decision to make. Men, what would you do? Be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Just Stir it on in. A little extra seasoning won't hurt anything, right? Well, apparently this guy was better than me and you because he didn't do that. He said, hey, guys, it's gumbo time. Come on, get your gumbo. And he said, but, but I have to tell you, just <laughs> so this chew here, you just, just a little bit of it kind of made its way into the gumbo. And here's your soup, right? And guess what? Did any of the men want it? No. No. None of the men wanted it because even though there may have been a little, little bit even though there was just a little bit, it infected the entire pot. Its extent, if you will, was holistic. And that's how sin is. Once it gets into our system, it doesn't just stay contained. It runs throughout all of who we are. And then finally, in verses 12 through 18, this, this large section, what Paul does is he wants us to see sin's expression. That is how then, if we are guilty before God, if our very natures are tainted, what does that look like? I mean, how does that affect it, uh, our, our daily life? I and mean, what does that look like for us to be so enslaved to sin? And so he just paints, he paints a picture. He says, our words are sinful, our deeds are sinful, our attitudes are sinful. And he, he just kind of paints this picture uh, uh, that generally, the way we express sin. So let's just read it in verse Starting in verse 13, he says, hey, our, our words, we sin with our, with our words. Verse 13, their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Notice the emphasis on the mouth. What he, he essentially says is that sin affects our lips. Notice the imagery. It's, it, it's, it's somewhat grotesque, but true. He says their throats are an open grave. I've never been at a gravesite that has been opened, but I would imagine, especially in that day, if you were to go and to open a, a grave, it wouldn't really smell very good. And he says, that's kind of like how our words are. It's, it just smells before a holy God. He then says, hey, our deeds, our deeds are, are, are also sinful. Verse 15, notice the emphasis on, on the feet. 
in their actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way in the way of peace they do not know. So he says, you know, we, we sin with our lips, we sin with our actions, and then he gets to our attitudes. Notice verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That speaks to our attitude that we do not fear God. We don't fear him. We don't regard him, if you will. And so in verses 10 through 18, he's, he supported his closing argument. He said, I've stated my closing argument. We're, we're under sin. Our natures are corrupted. He supported it with more than is necessary in verses 10 through 18. And then he kind of wraps up in verses 19 and 20. And he gives what I would call the sentence. That is, if all of this is true, well then what of it? What does it matter? What's, what's, what's the sentence coming from from the ultimate judge of the universe, if all of this is true, if both our deeds and our nature fall short, then what of it? What's the sentence? And he tells us the sentence in verses 19 through 20. He begins by reminding us of this simple truth. He begins by reminding us of the fact that we are all under God's law, that is both the moral law, that is in our conscience, uh, any part of God's supernatural revelation through the scriptures that we might know, We are under that law, that is, we understand it, and then we are in debt to it. That is, we are without excuse. If we break it, then there are consequences to it. And so he begins in verses 19 through 20, and he makes this argument that we're under God's law, and we're without excuse because we break it, and therefore we are accountable to him, verses 19 and 20. Let's read that together. He says, "Now, now we know that whatever the law says, It says to those who are under the law. Let me bring it home. He says, whatever God's law says, it says to those who are under the law. So when you go down the highway and you read 55 miles per hour, then what it's saying to you, what the law is saying to you is, this is the law, 55 miles per hour, right? And and that's what Paul is saying. He says, whatever the law says, 55 miles per hour, it says to those who are under the law. Now, now let me ask you this. If you're going 55 uh, up the highway, say to Kankakee or whatever, and you're going 85, and you get pulled over, are you under the law? Are are you, therefore, uh, responsible for the consequences of breaking that law? Yes, you are. Are you not? You are responsible for that. And that's what Paul says. He says, we know that whatever God's law says, it says to those who are under it, so that, here's the point, so that every mouth, that's everyone, my mouth, your mouth, everyone's mouth, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Essentially what he's saying is this, folks. He says, there, <laughs> on the day we die and we stand before a holy God and he brings forth the evidence of our guiltiness before him, not one of you, not me, not you. We're not going to stand before the presence of a holy God and say, but, but wait, but, but we're not going to mount a defense. We're going to stand there and our mouths will be shut. We will have nothing to say because we will recognize that we are guilty before a holy God. Every mouth will be shut. We are all made accountable to God. And then he wraps up in verse 20 and he does this wisely. Because even still, even in spite of everything we've seen, even in in spite of Paul's argument that, hey, moral people really aren't good enough, religious people really aren't good enough, he he still, he kind of closes this conclusion by addressing the people who still, in spite of all of the evidence we've seen, who still might say, but God, I know, I know I'm under the law. I know, I know I'm under the law and accountable to you, but 
but I've kept it. I've done it. I've, I've, I've been obedient. I, I've, not, I've not ever broken your law. And, and to that person, he wraps up by, by saying, verse 20, he, he says, listen, it's a final warning to anyone who think they might be right with God by keeping the law, by being obedient. He says, listen, here's my final warning, verse 20. Therefore, no one, and he means no one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That is, no one will stand before God and say, God, I've perfectly kept every single one of your laws, therefore I am right with you and I will get into heaven. He says, that is an impossibility. No one will be declared right by the works of the law. Rather, rather, so here's the question. Okay, God, he, You've given us these moral laws. You've given us our conscience. You've given us the Bible, right? You've told us what you expect, but you're saying we, we, don't, we don't meet that. So why did you even give us these laws? I mean, what's the deal? Why did, why did, you, why did you tell us? What's, what's the point? What's the point of our conscience in the Bible? Why? Well, he, he tells us. He says this is what God's rules, God's regulations, God's commands, ultimately, this is what they're for. Through the law, we become conscience, conscious of our sin. So, this is what he's saying. But keeping God's laws was never meant to be a way to be made right with God. It was God's way of showing us, hey, dummy, you're not right with me. <laughs> you need help. That's what the point of the law is. It's like a mirror. It's like a mirror. Um, guys, I know you don't do this, probably. Women, maybe you do. But um, say in the morning, you, you wake up and you do whatever you need to do, and it's time to go to the mirror, okay? It's time to go to the mirror. And you go to the mirror, you want to check out the damage done the night before, right? Kind of see what's going on, you know? And, uh, and, and you look at the mirror, and, and you see what you see, right? But let's say you look in the mirror, and, and you see a blemish. You see maybe a big fat pimple right here, or you see some sleep in your eyes, or you see... You know, maybe you were tossing and turning, your wife whacked you in the middle of the night, and there's a bruise, whatever, you know. You look in the mirror, and there's a blemish there, right? And you look in the mirror, and you say, oh, something's not right here. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I'm not, yeah, thanks, Steve. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not looking like I'm supposed to, right? But then, what do you do? It, it, it's to show you that there's something not right so that you can then go and kind of do something about it. But what you don't do is you look in the mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall. I want to be the fairest of them all. And so fix me. Well, that's ridiculous because the point of the mirror is not to make you right. <laughs> it's to show you that you're not right. And that's what the point of the law is, Paul says. The point of the law is to show you that you're not right. It's to point you outside of yourself. And so we're going to wrap up here this morning with, with the clip. And so I'm going to ask the guys to kind of get that ready. But the point of the law, and, and really the point of everything that Paul has been saying here, is this. He wants to weed out every hope in and of yourself of being right with God. He wants you to fall to your knees and to recognize that there is nothing I could ever do, say, think, or earn to be right with God. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our rope. And he's not just doing that because somehow God is mean and, and dirty and, and we can all go home, boy, pastor was really sad today. I didn't feel good. No, he, 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 does, he doesn't just want to bring us down. He wants to bring us up. But until you recognize that you're down in the pit, you're not going to look for saving. You're not going to look for help, right? Until you recognize the state that you're in, you're not going to look upwards. You're going to look inwards. And what Paul has been doing has been saying, stop looking inward and look outward 
to Jesus. That's what he's been doing. And if you stay with me one more week, next week is the good week. It's the good news. We've heard bad news. There is glorious good news that we can, in spite of all this, know God, be right with God, be forgiven, be changed. There is hope. But he's bringing us to the end of our rope because he wants us to let go of our rope and to be caught by the arms of Jesus. And so we're going to play this clip. This clip may be familiar with you. It's it's, a... Pretty, uh, pretty award-winning movie, I think, called Titanic. Um, and it's the very end scene where the ship is going down. And it's just a brief clip. So let's take a look at this, and then we'll wrap up. Coming? No? Okay, no go. <laughs> well, projector, you ruined my conclusion. <laughs> okay, let me, let me paint the picture. It's okay, guys, no worries. Let me paint the picture. It's the Titanic. It's a big ship. It's looking like this, and it's going down into icy water. People are falling. People are clinging, and there is only one hope, and that is for them to get themselves onto a lifeboat, for them to look outside of themselves to something that can save them that is outside of themselves. And they're going down, and it's, it's a big scene. The point that I wanted to make is quite simply this, is that Paul has been making an analogy, and he's saying, listen, humanity is on a sinking ship. We're headed to destruction. We're worthy of God's judgment. We're worthy of God's wrath. We're on a sinking ship, and, and we don't have any means in and of ourselves to save ourselves, and so we need to look outside of ourselves. We need to look to the divine life vest, if you will. We need to look to the divine lifeboat, who's called Jesus, who will save us from this mess that we've gotten ourselves in. And so that is Paul's closing argument. That's what he said. It's doom and it's gloom, but what he wants us to do is to see how bad we are so that we can see how good Jesus Christ is and how desperately we need him. Next week, what we're gonna see, in short, is this. Even though we are guilty, we can be declared innocent. Even though the, uh, the judge bangs his gavel guilty, what he can do is he can bang his gavel innocent. And he can declare you and I, even though we are not worthy of being declared innocent, he can declare us innocent because of the work of another, because of the work of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is innocent, because Jesus Christ is perfect. And he can then declare us righteous and he, we can receive this gift of righteousness, of right standing, simply by receiving the gift, simply, simply by saying, Jesus, you are worthy, I am not. You have done this for me. I will receive it as a gift and I will be changed, I'll be born again and I'll be made right. That is where we're going. And so next week, we're going, to see, we're going to see something that I think in courtroom terms is significant. We're going to see a plea bargain. We're going to see that there's going to be a deal that's going to be made, and it's going to be a great deal for all of humanity. So come next week, and we'll find out what that is. Let's pray together.